this episode, I thought I'd go through some of the cases of really mysterious disappearances of children in the woods. In 1856, in the Pennsylvanian Allegheny Mountains, two young boys went missing. Nearly 200 people rapidly began searching for them through the dense hilltops and ravines, but they could find no trace of the boys. They wouldn't give up, though, and for 10 days they searched. Everyone got involved, closing their businesses and stopping work to help in the search, knowing the unforgiving wilderness of the area they were lost in. Many people stayed out at night, lighting fires on various spots across the mountains, hoping to draw the children towards one of them. While many searchers took a new route on the mountain each day, others would travel back over the same ground they'd already covered, guessing that the children could have come back to that part of the mountain in their wanderings. As the days went by without a trace of them, speculation and rumour began amongst the community. They were killed by a wild beast. They'd been kidnapped. Their parents had murdered them. Then, a farmer named Jacob Dilbert, who lived a few miles away, began to have recurring nightmares. For several nights in a row, he dreamt that he was with the search party when he became separated from them and discovered the boys. Unfamiliar with the forest area himself, Though he thought himself crazy, he described to his wife the detailed scene in his nightmares and asked her if she knew of an area like that in the mountains. She replied that there was such an area. Upon telling his brother-in-law about the nightmares too, his brother-in-law thought it impossible for the boys to have got to that location in Jacob's dreams. They would have had to have gone approximately six miles from their home and crossed a wide, fast-running creek and climbed high. The two boys, George and Joseph Cox, were only five and seven years old. He said it was impossible. However, perplexed by such unaccustomed and disturbing nightmares, Jacob felt he had to investigate, and so his brother-in-law led him to the area that he described. They reached a hollow. They saw a deer he had described as being dead in his nightmares, crossed over the creek and hiked up a steep ravine on the opposite side where they saw the shoe of one of the boys that he had also described from his nightmares. Shortly after, they found the boys' bodies in the exact positions that Jacob had described in his nightmares. Spookily accurate, his nightmares had told him where to find the children, though tragically, they were dead by then. Several aspects of the case are really disturbing, not only for the fact that the man seemingly had cognitive dreams telling him how to find them, but also that the boys had ended up where they did. How on earth had they climbed upwards into the mountains on a very, very steep hill? And how had they got across the creek, the fast-flowing creek, all the time knowing that they were going far away from home? In another strangely similar case, but this time in Wales, on August 4th, 1900, a miner from Rhonda Kintaf, a county in Wales, decided to take his five-year-old son to visit his grandparents, who lived on a farm in the Brecon Beacons National Park. After setting off, they reached the nearby town in the early evening, still with hours of daylight left. And from there, they set out on a walk of just under five miles in order to reach the farmhouse that lay deep in the valley. As it got to eight o'clock, they came upon a military camp, where they stopped and bought drinks and biscuits at the army canteen. As they ate and drank and rested for a while before finishing the short lap of their walk, the grandfather arrived there with his 13-year-old nephew, Will, the little boy's cousin. 
On greeting them, his grandfather told Will to go back to the farmhouse to announce the imminent arrival of his son and grandson. As Will set off, little Tommy said he wanted to go with Will and ran to catch him up. His father was okay about letting him go the remaining distance, it still being daylight and not being that far to go. To get to the farmhouse, the two boys had to go over two small wooden bridges, one of which had no handrail. As they got about halfway to the farmhouse, Tommy started to cry and said he wanted to go back to his dad. The two boys separated, with Will carrying on to the farmhouse, which he quickly reached and gave the family the message that soon Tommy and his father would be arriving. Then he turned straight back to go back to his grandfather, Tommy, and Tommy's father at the army base. Tommy, however, was not there when he arrived. He hadn't come back, and Will had not passed him on the way back to the army camp. Tommy's father and grandfather immediately started searching for Tommy, and within only a few minutes, they'd asked the army men there to help them. There was no sign of Tommy anywhere between the distance of the camp and the farmhouse, and the light started fading. But they carried on searching in the dark until the search was halted at midnight. At 3am, they began the search again, with the police joining them now and members of the local community who had learned of Tommy's disappearance. The search continued the next day and the day after. It carried on for a week, and the week after that, and for several weeks. Every day, search parties of volunteers, police, soldiers and farmers searched every inch of the area. The bracken was hacked away, and the woodland was almost ransacked in an attempt to find the little boy. They left no area uncovered. They climbed to the top of the mountain and covered every spot from the way up, up and down. Speculation began to grow that Tommy must have been kidnapped by local gypsies, as there was no trace of him at all. The police searched every gypsy caravan in the area, but they found no clues. The national newspapers offered monetary rewards for information on the boys' whereabouts, but no leads came in that were credible. Then, a Mrs Hammers the wife of a gardener who resided several miles away at Castle Maddock, kept having dreams about Tommy. She could have dismissed it if it was one dream, but the dreams recurred every night, and she found herself confiding in her husband, and then persuading him to borrow a pony carriage and take her to the mountain, even though she'd never been there before. They hiked to the top of the mountain, where Mrs Hammers said they must go and they walked over a piece of open ground, and suddenly her husband, who was a few yards ahead of her, stopped in horror as he saw the remains of the little boy lying directly in his path. Later on, the coroner would rule the death of Tommy as exposure, but neither he nor anyone else was able to come up with an explanation as to how this boy of just five years old had managed, after a very long day of travelling already, to reach the spot at which they found him. It was a climb of several miles over difficult and rough terrain, and he would have been in the dark. And why had no one seen him after all the weeks of searches? His father and all the other searchers had been up this high mountain several times looking for him, many times searching, but never seeing him there. After Tommy's burial, his parents kept the little suit he'd been wearing that day and the whistle that he wore around his neck. Some wondered, why didn't he use the whistle that night to call for help? Was he just too young to think about it? Or had something stopped him? 
In the winter of 1890, Otty Powell was four years old. He attended a school in rural Amherst County, Virginia. On the day that it happened, his schoolmistress asked all the children in the class to go out to the woods around the schoolhouse to collect some timber for the classroom stove. As all the children returned back indoors with the wood, it was soon realised that Otty was not among them. Immediately, the schoolmistress sent the other children to their homes nearby to collect their parents and begin a search for the missing boy. The school was within the George Washington National Forest on the Appalachian Trail by Bluff Mountain. It was surrounded by thick, dense woodland. Hundreds of neighbours and friends began a desperate search for Otty, spreading out in circles from the school, but they could find no trace of him. Snow started falling heavily and an ice storm started and it became impossible to continue searching for him. By evening, they had to stop. Over the next few days, which turned into weeks, hundreds of volunteers continued searching the area, but to no avail. Several months later, on April 3rd, 1892, seven miles away on the top of the mountain, hunters there heard their dog barking and followed its trail up a steep path that led to the top of the mountain. There, they found the remains of Otty. Everyone in the area and those reading all the newspaper accounts nationally were baffled as to how and why the young boy had managed to climb his way over rocks through hedges and up cliffs to this lofty peak at the altitude of 3,350 feet, barefoot. A local gardener more recently blogged that she had gone up the mountain on a hike and commented that it felt like walking up a flight of stairs for two hours without stopping. On reaching the top, she noticed the memorial there to Otty. She says his body was found on this spot. How would a four-year-old child wandered up a mountain that we had found so difficult to climb? In another case, a young boy was found miles from where he vanished and on the edge of a precipice. Associated Press in July 1938 reported a week's search of streams and rugged mountains in the National Park failed to turn up any signs of the youngster. The missing boy had last been seen a week earlier near the Rocky Mountain National Park cabin he was staying in with his parents, Mr and Mrs William Byharts from Denver. Little four-year-old Alfred was camping in the Rocky Mountain National Park on the 4th July holiday weekend in 1938. The family, which consisted of 12, had gone to fish at Estes Park. At the time of the little boy's disappearance, all contemporary reports say he was hiking with his parents on a trail that ran along the creek. They were in a rocky, wooded section of the park. After his family realised that he had not caught up with them, they all began to search for him, but with no luck finding him at all, and they asked park rangers for help. It would turn into a ten-day search. A six-mile search of the immediate area in which he disappeared was extensively covered. Tracker dogs picked up his scent 500 feet uphill from where he was last seen. Although his parents claimed that the little boy had gone nowhere near the river, the conclusion the authorities put forward, after their searching failed to find him, was that he must have fallen or gone swimming in the water and drowned. Authorities blocked off portions of the river he'd been closest to when he disappeared and searched it. They created dams to block off and prevent his body floating further away. But they didn't find his body in the water. They searched six miles of the river. It took them five days. The strange thing was, the bloodhounds didn't track the boy's scent to the river anyway. 
the bloodhounds had actually tracked him uphill to approximately 500 feet from where he'd last been seen. His parents said he'd been lagging behind them when he suddenly vanished. So it didn't seem to make sense that he would then start climbing uphill. Surely, on realising he was being left behind by his parents, who were descending at the time, he would have started running downhill to catch them up. But the scent dogs, for some reason, picked him up going uphill. On the other hand, there's also a significant discrepancy in the later articles written about his disappearance. They all say he was hiking with his parents. However, the newspapers from the time of his disappearance say he was last seen by the river with his cousins and father. From National Park Service records, they title an article, The Wandering of a Small Boy. They say it prompted one of the most intensive mountain searches ever undertaken in Colorado. The family had established a weekend camp about a quarter of a mile west of Fall River Lodge, north of Trail Ridge Road. Upon arising on the morning of July the 3rd, the boy's father went to a nearby stream to wash, and the boy set off with him. So again, it's a slightly different account. Oren Bronson and Walter Hansen, both members of the party, also went to wash about 500 feet further upstream. The report continues. Alfred followed them. When the two men returned to camp, they noticed that Alfred was missing and an immediate search was started. One would think then that this account is the most accurate, given that it comes from the National Park Service, who led the search for him, and it does differ from the newspaper articles, particularly the modern ones. The record continues, the search proved unavailing and calls went unanswered, so the family contacted Roger Mumar, a National Park ranger, at the Fall River Station. Mumar immediately enlisted the aid of the Civilian Conservation Corps, and a search began under the leadership of Chief Ranger Barton Heischler. More than 100 members of the Civilian Conservation Corps participated. Chief Engineer for the NPS, Hilgdick, directed rapid establishment of contact between search parties by means of shortwave radio. Bloodhounds from the Colorado State Penitentiary entered into the search on July the 4th. On July the 5th, Roaring River was diverted and every inch of the riverbed scoured to the junction with pikes and grappling hooks, as were the woods and brush for 10 miles around the camp from which the boy disappeared. Well, as each day passed, no clues were uncovered about the boy's whereabouts. The report says no trace of the boy's body could be found. G-men entered the case when a threat of kidnapping was seriously considered. A Denver couple reported seeing a boy answering the missing youngster's description sitting on a boulder in the Devil's Nest region, near where young Bilehearts disappeared. In November 1938, the parents received a hoax ransom note, they say, again hinting at the possibility of kidnapping because the boy was said to be still alive. The investigation of the note likewise proved fruitless and it was genuinely concluded that the boy perished in the park, probably by drowning in Fall River or tributaries, they say. Alfred was officially listed as drowned in the Rocky Mountain National Park, officially the first drowning recorded there. So, the Park Service version is that he simply fell into the water and was swept away before he could be found, which is indeed a possible answer. In fact, park ranger Moomar experimented by placing a sack weighed down with rocks into the river to see how fast it might flow down river. He concluded that having seen the sack vanish to the point that they never found it again, there was evidence enough that a small boy could have certainly vanished down river and got caught under the current somewhere, preventing his body from reappearing. But does this mean that the man and woman who claimed to have seen the little boy perched high up on a cliff edge were mistaken. A man and woman were hiking in the National Forest along the Old Fall Road on an elevated peak called Devil's Nest. They said they spotted a little boy. 
They said the little boy made a sudden, shrill noise while peering over the edge of the ridge, then suddenly vanished from sight. This was at a spot six miles from where Alfred had vanished, according to the Greeley Daily Tribune of July the 8th, 1938. The following day, the couple, Mr and Mrs William J Ells, were shocked to see this little boy's photo in the daily newspaper, and it was attached to a missing person's report. On seeing this, they immediately contacted the National Park Service, who responded by sending climbers to search the cliff edge named Devil's Nest. In all, 150 people went up to search it. They found no sign of the little boy there now. The two hikers, when they had seen the little boy, had been really surprised to see him on the edge of a cliff, yet they had assumed, perhaps understandably, that he would not have been up there alone. He would have been with a father or mother. Why did he make a shrill shriek? Were they mistaken? Or was it another boy up there instead? If so, where were his parents? Was it his parents who pulled him swiftly back from the cliff edge? Or was it Alfred? The couple were convinced, to the extent that the moment they saw the newspaper report of Alfred's disappearance the next day, they contacted the authorities. Surely they wouldn't immerse themselves in a missing persons case, one that involved the G-men, if they didn't believe they'd seen a little boy on the cliff edge. The Greeley Daily Tribune of Colorado reported on July the 8th William J. Bell's Denver Radio Appliance employee, who told of having seen the child high on the slope of Mount Chapin, six miles west of the spot little Alfred disappeared, said he and his wife had walked far up the Old Fall River Road until they became tired. He said they stopped to rest and then looking far up the mountainside saw a boy sitting on a rock. When the couple climbed to the point near the rock, Els said the boy had disappeared. There's no mention of the scream in this article, but Mr. Els apparently, quote, expressed belief that no child could have reached the spot without assistance. David H. Cranfield, the park superintendent, said they would question the man and his wife further. What are we to also make of another lady who came forward, through her brother-in-law, to claim that she too had seen the little boy, but in an entirely different spot, walking along a highway with a man? Associated Press of July the 11th said a Nebraska woman's conviction she saw a man walking a highway with five-year-old Alfred, missing eight days, led Colorado authorities to ask Western Nebraska officer to investigate. A Mrs. C.A. Lynch of Big Spring, Nebraska, near the northeastern corner of Colorado, apparently informed her brother-in-law, Mr. Lynch, that she saw the pair Friday while she and her husband were driving from Big Spring to Ogala, Nebraska. And Denver Detective Sergeant Fred Renovata said the man told him his sister-in-law saw the boy's picture in the next day's newspaper and was positive this boy was the one whose picture she saw. When a ransom note came through in November 1938, four months after the little boy vanished, the Corpus Christi Caller Times reported that police had dismissed the ransom note sent to the parents demanding $500 for the safe return of Alfred. The note said, the boy doesn't take to us. Law enforcement's opinion, however, was that this was a cruel hoax. The note said, Sorry for your son, we went west, out of money. The newspaper said the parents are inclined to believe that their son is kidnapped, but Detective Cranfield said he considered the kidnap theory was born largely of their hope the child was still alive. The FBI conducted investigations, laboratory tests to determine whether a bandage found in an old abandoned cabin on the Rocky Mountain National Park was one worn by Alfred. It was disclosed that this bandage had been found after the parents had expressed the belief that their child had been abducted. However, the outcome of the test wasn't reported, 
but the mother apparently told officers that the missing child had a blister on his foot and she said she had bandaged the foot. So where was little Alfred? Was he in the river, as the park service and law enforcement believed, despite the river being dragged? Or was he, really, on a precipice six miles away, shrieking suddenly? Or was he walking along a highway with a man? Well, the answer has never come because he has never been found. It's odd that if he fell in the river, no one in the party, who were right with him, heard him scream for help or thrash about in the water. And yet United Press reported bloodhounds trailed the path that the boy evidently took when he wandered off and said that the keen-nosed dogs have repeatedly led the searchers to the bank of the river. So there's so many different newspaper accounts, and yet they continue repeated attempts to drag the river swollen by melting snow has failed to reveal any evidence that the boy was in the water. So very conflicting. On the one-year anniversary of the child's disappearance, the Amarillo Times wrote, the child disappeared in five minutes. Hundreds of CCC enrollees and volunteers searched in vain. The Roaring River was diverted from its channel. No tracks were found, and bloodhounds from the prison failed to pick up the child's trail. So many years have passed since this happened, and with all the different accounts, it's so hard to know whether he fell in the river, went uphill, was kidnapped, or what happened. His father, back then, told Corpus Christi Caller, I know he didn't fall in the river. He was adamant. But who really knows? In July 1964, the New York Times reported on the strange case of a missing three-year-old girl. They say a search party of 400 men found today a three-year-old girl who'd been missing from her home for 17 hours. She was dishevelled, but otherwise in good condition. The child, Monica May, daughter of Amanda May, a well-known New York restaurant owner, had wandered away at some point from the family's summer home on Paradise Island in Orange County, they say. Ernest Whippinger, a Middletown school crossing guard, had found the child huddled among rocks on top of Paradise Mountain at an elevation of over 1,600 feet. Douglas Kinnear, Orange County fire coordinator, said the child had presumably walked across a footbridge connecting the 14-acre Neversink River Island to the mainland and then scaled the mountain. The party of volunteers who'd been searching the thickly wooded area had included police, firemen, with bloodhounds too to try to pick up her scent. They'd searched through the night and had already passed through the area up on the mountain where she was eventually found alive. The 1606 foot Mount Paradise is located in the most remote section of the AT in New Jersey. So it has to be asked how the child managed to climb up the mountain and why she'd done so, as well as why the trackers and the searchers were unable to find her scent from the area where she went missing. How did she get there? Another strange case was reported on by the UK Spectator magazine in May 1902 in what they titled A Strange Story. They wrote that the incident could be regarded as a case for the student of the Annals of Coroner's Inquests. This case, they say, is sufficiently curious. Well, it involved a young boy called William Llewellyn, who apparently, three weeks earlier, had unaccountably disappeared in the street of a little Welsh town, and whose body was discovered on the summit of a Glamorganshire hilltop on the previous Saturday. It was reported that the little boy had disappeared from a shop that he was in with his mother. 
They say every possible effort was made to find him, but it wasn't until more than a fortnight had passed that his dead body was found, unintentionally, by foxhounds. It was lying on a spot, they say, which is described as the highest point in Glamorganshire. The coroner said there was no evidence of a crime. The spectator asks, trying to understand the unusual circumstances, is there any plausible theory? They say, here are the facts. The whole countryside turned out in search. All the neighbouring hills, roads and fields were thoroughly examined. Strangely, the child's boots were not in the condition they would have expected to be in. They say the child's boots, an important fact, are stated not to have been soiled. So rather than being dirty from climbing up the highest mountain in the area, and for such a long walk, his boots were completely clean. The child was only five years old, and yet the spot where he was found was over 1,800 feet, and over 10 miles, as the crow flies, from where he'd been with his mother. But his boots were completely clean. If he had walked at all, he probably would have walked more than 10 miles, not as the crow flies. So how could he do that with clean boots, and being such a tiny little boy? The spectator says a child of five could hardly be supposed to be strong enough to walk a long distance, yet his body was found ten miles away from the place where he was last seen. If he had walked at all, he would not have walked straight to the place where his body was found, they said. No person who has lost his way walks in a perfectly straight line. From April the 11th, when he was lost, to the last day on which he could possibly have been alive, he was seen, so far as could be ascertained, by nobody. Is it not remarkable that the body was found on the summit of the highest, most inaccessible hill in the area? Why should a little boy end a long wandering by climbing the highest hill in the neighbourhood? The instinct of a person lost is to go down, not up. He knows that the homes are in the valleys, not on summits. It's one of the strangest things that has come to light for some years, they say. How did it happen, they ask, if the boy was wandering for days, that he was seen by nobody? A kidnapper? You are left to imagine a creature of a hideously twisted mind, something between a beast and a man, a sort of human gorilla who decided that his own safety would be best assured by taking the boy to a lonely spot without leaving any record. And they continue, This theory would require the supposition that the kidnapper knew the neighbours, the highest hill, and when he could take his victim there without fear of detection. But the coroner expressed there were no grounds for supposing the deceased had been kidnapped, nor any foul play of any kind. Well, the spectators say, do we solve it by saying it was just an instance of superhuman endurance and total failure in a power of reasoning? Well, there's more details too. The little boy's coat was placed beside him when he was found. He had no injuries apart from abrasions to his hands. It was ruled that he had been dead for a number of days, but not as long as the time that he'd been missing for. Where had he been? And how did he get there, where he was found? Why was his coat laid out beside him? All of it is such a strange case. In August 1985, the strange disappearance of a boy scout gripped the nation of Brazil and led to one of their greatest mysteries. The newspaper said that the case left a mark of fear and uncertainty because, to this day, no indication of what happened has been discovered. On August 6th, 1985, a small scout group went trekking in the forested mountain region near the city of Pickett, Sao Paulo. The group consisted of Juan Bernabio, the scout leader, and four scouts all in their mid-teens. 
only three of the four scouts returned. Marcus Salvion disappeared in a way that would seem almost supernatural when he disappeared without leaving any tracks or trail. His father, a journalist called Ivo, said, At no time have I considered that he is dead. But he also has no idea what happened to him. The mountaintop that they were trekking up reaches as high as 2,420 metres above sea level, and it's a rocky climb. The group had set up a camp at the base and were in the process of trekking uphill on one of the steep trails. As the group were ascending the trail, one of the other boys, Osvaldo, slipped and dislocated his knee. Thinking that they may need to summon rescuers with the stretcher, the scout leader asked one of the boys to go back to the base to fetch medical assistance. Marcus volunteered to be the boy to head back down to the base and the scout leader agreed for him to go, but told him to leave chalk markers of his route as he went back down. He was to leave markers saying 240, which was the number of their scout group. When the rest of the group got back to base later, having received no medical assistance, they found that the team there didn't know of their predicament, as Marcus hadn't arrived there back at base. For the next 28 days, civilian volunteers, the police and the military went over the mountain with a fine-tooth comb. They searched on foot and with helicopters, but they found no body, no pieces of clothing, and just two chalk markings saying 240. There were no more markings after that, and no trace of the boy. It was as if Marcus had evaporated. The police and military searched so scrupulously, covering every inch, that a soldier who had lost a knife in the middle of the forest found it the next day when searching again. That's how intricate and minute the searching method was, every inch of the forest and mountain. To this day, however, Marcus has never been seen again. On one occasion, a searcher asked the boy's parents if they believed in flying saucers and suggested they go to Brasilia to speak with an Air Force general who was aware, apparently, of extraterrestrial phenomena in the area. The general said he could communicate with aliens telepathically. Desperate and willing to do anything to have their child back, the parents spoke to the general and asked him to ask the aliens to return their child. But they received no response. The tragedy that shook the family moved the entire country too, followed every day of the desperate search. For a month, over 300 people, including volunteers, firefighters and specialist teams in search and rescue, had stayed in the forest, scouring the Picos de Marins region without any success. They were all bewildered. They found none of his things. No knife, no water bottle, no clothes, nothing. It was like he was never there at all. The scout party had set up base at the property of Afonso Xavier, who himself had five decades of experience as a guide in the area. He could find no clues about the disappearance either. He'd gone with the scouts initially when they set off, but when the scout leader realised they could easily make their own way, he said that they could manage without him. The area itself is a common and popular spot for tourists and hikers heading up to Pico de Marins, and there was a clear trail to follow... Well, according to Operation Marins, written by investigator Rodrigo Nunes, the last time the scout was seen was at 2.40pm. The rest of the group had passed by the two 2.40 marks made by Marcus as they started descending, but after that they came to a fork with tracks left and right, 
and they didn't know which way he'd gone. Although they believed that Marcus maybe had gone down the path on the left, but that path had obstacles, so that wasn't going to work for them because they were carrying Osvaldo on their shoulders, the scout who'd injured his knee. The group leader decided to take the trail on the right. He would later say he thought that it would be no problem that they would cross later and rejoin the trail that the boy had taken. But the path they took became longer than they expected and they didn't make it back to the camp until 5.30 in the morning, taking a staggering 15 hours to accomplish their trek back down, all the while carrying the injured boy. They all thought they'd find Marcus sleeping in the camp tent, but when they arrived, they found the tent empty with the belongings the boy had brought on the expedition still there, ruling out the possibility that he'd left and gone for some reason. Officers of the military police, an infantry battalion, sniffer dogs, trackers, guides, and even parapsychologists and psychics arrived to participate in the search efforts. It was one of the biggest searches the country had ever held, but they found nothing. Some of the assumptions made at the time were initially that the disappearances had to be tied to the scout leader, but he was easily ruled out after the other boys were questioned. He never left them alone at any point during the trek down. Another theory was that the boy could have fallen into a hole, but if this had occurred, the decomposing body would have been found by the cadaver dogs who participated in the search, and that didn't happen. The third hypothesis was that he could have been abducted by aliens, the Pecost and Marins is considered a region with very strong magnetic power, which, according to mystics, attracts extraterrestrial craft. Accordingly, the family sought out ufologists, but they couldn't explain what happened either. The boy's father said we went to psychics and spiritualists, including a famous medium, Chico Xavier. Most say that he is alive. Xavier told his father, I only communicate with people who are discarnated, not the living. And so because of this, the family still believed that their son was alive. The only possible clue came on the second night of the search, when the scout leader and the other scouts were preparing to get some sleep after searching all day. They heard a scream, followed by the sound of a whistle. They were all astonished as they knew the Boy Scout wore a whistle, as they all did with their uniform. At the sound of the whistle, everyone ran out of the tent and with the guide Alfonso, they headed towards the forest. Suddenly, they saw a flash of blue light in the forest followed by two more flashes. The scout leader took hold of his own whistle and started to blow it, hoping to hear the boy whistle back again, but there was only silence. That's what made ufologists say that it was at that moment that the boy was taken. The group reported the incident to the police and the military searching for the boy, but they didn't find any source for the blue lights, and they didn't find the boy. (laughs) 